So we've just heard the second half of John's Easter story. Last week we heard the first half, the part where Mary comes first in the dark to the empty tomb, wonders what is going on, eventually has that touching encounter in the garden with Jesus. Uh, Peter and John then come and they see the empty tomb and the folded clothes and they're, they're confused, but John says they see and believe, but yet they really don't know what to believe. They don't know what's going on. The disciples all return to their homes, and then after that brief diaspora, they they huddle together in a room, hiding, uh, I guess, trying to make a plan, trying to figure out what to make of the hearsay of of, of this woman's story. You know, how could you trust a woman? They're not even allowed to be witnesses in a court of law back then, and yet here is this first witness of the resurrection, a female telling these guys what happened. What do you, what do you make of that? Why wouldn't John pick a more reliable witness to begin with, one would wonder. But Mary was the first witness of the resurrection, the first apostle, you might say, of the risen Christ. So the disciples are, are huddled there for fear of the Jews. An odd phrase since they are all Jews. So what's to fear? Well, it's, it's a problematic phrase, but it, it probably refers to the fact that John is speaking to his church a few decades later when Christians, the, the Jewish Christians, had been uh, uh, excommunicated from the synagogues. And so uh, they, the, the Christians in that time at the end of the first century were fearing their uh, fellow Jewish uh, folk for the persecution that some of them were experiencing. It's a, it's a fear that the church no longer needs to, to own. We don't need to hide behind closed doors here for fear of the Jews. In fact, probably it's more the other way around in many parts of the world. Uh, it seems religious intolerance in so many places has increased. Christians uh, under persecution in some places and other places, Jews or Muslims or, or Hindus. Uh, so the struggle to maintain faith in the face of a hostile environment. The disciples are locked up It calls to mind for us all of the things that that frighten and demoralize us and keep us hidden and protected in our particular contexts. I can't help but think that we live in a society that really is gripped by a deep fear. I mean, I see it in so many different ways. I also, of course, experience it on a personal level, as, as do you. I was with someone yesterday who, who was just uh, facing a new health issue. And that person is really scared. And it reminded me of how quickly our world can change, how, how quickly uh, we can go from, quote, normal to having our world turned upside down. Well, the disciples were a fearful bunch. 
and they were not trying to figure out how to go out and spread the good news. They were, they were just interested in survival. And it was at that point that Jesus breaks into the room somehow. How, we don't know. The door was locked, but he came in. The mystery of his appearance, and then his disappearance, and then his reappearance in John, it reminds us that the resurrection itself is is not ever really explained. No one ever really saw it. No one could really define it. All that we know is that they were encountering the risen Christ in that room. And Jesus comes, and the very first thing he says is, why did you guys betray me? No, he didn't say that. No. He, he, he came with no recriminations. He came with no blame, no axe to grind. No pointing of fingers. He came and offered his peace, shalom, to the very group of people who had let him down just a little bit ago. He came to them in their fear and said, the peace that I promised a while back, I'm here to give it to you. I give you this peace. Now, it's not the kind of peace that, that guarantees a, a happiness and a life of ease and security, of course. We know that. In fact, the peace of Christ is guaranteed through Jesus' journey to the cross. It is the fruit of his decisive victory over death and evil, that peace. And so he invites the disciples to touch his wounds, to see the evidence of what God has done to bring peace and not just more violence and hate. Death will not have the last word. And so Jesus says, you can have peace because I am still with you. But the gift of Christ's peace was not just for the guys in the room. Because the next thing Jesus said is, as I have been sent, so I am sending you. So the next thing that Jesus is giving this group is a mission. He's sending them out. He's saying, the way that I have been with you, the way that God has been present with you in me, walking with you, eating with you, touching your hurts, forgiving your brokenness, the way that I have come to the least of you, the way that I have confronted evil and injustice, now I'm sending you to be the continuation of that ministry, to embody my presence into the future. So as I have been sent, now you are to go out. The disciples are to mirror Jesus. But this re-presenting of Jesus is going to require something more than the disciples have, certainly more than we have. And so Jesus breathes upon them the gift of the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them as God breathed life into Adam and Eve and into every living thing in Genesis. 
he breathes now upon this group of scared people and gives them new life, gives them new faith. You see, this is John's Pentecost. It's arriving 50 days ahead of schedule. Not middle of June, but now for John. The Spirit is given and the disciples are sent out with a commission. Go in my Spirit with my peace to do what I have been doing. In breathing upon the disciples, Jesus quite literally inspires them. But not all of his disciples were there. Thomas, as Brianna said, was was absent for the day. And so he becomes the doubter, the one who says, I I must have more evidence. But really he's speaking for all of us, isn't he? He's really taking the words out of our mouth. We would love more evidence. We would love to be able to touch and hold and measure and quantify and reproduce over and over and reassure and have proof, scientific proof, that we could argue our own doubts away. So Thomas, in a way, he he was like all the other disciples, no worse than them and certainly no worse than us. You know, I have a, I guess, a problem with the way Thomas is portrayed. It, I, to call him a doubting Thomas, first of all, the word doubt is not even in the text. But second, I think we can tend to trivial, trivialize doubt as something that should be repressed, not admitted, quickly overcome. Doubt is a persistent element in our religious experience. Doubt is a necessary and generative element of our religious life. I can't read the story of Thomas without uh, thinking about a, an Irish philosopher named Peter Rollins. He, he had this quote. He said, To believe is human, to doubt is divine. We tend to think that believing incredible claims is hard and that doubting is easy. The 19th century philosopher Soren Kierkegaard popularized the notion of the leap of faith, believing in wild claims of Christianity despite the paradoxes of them. But Peter Rollins suggests that Believing is, in fact, easy, while doubt is a more difficult path. And I think what he means is that believing is easy when we have an uncritical faith, something, a, a faith in something that gives us comfort, makes us feel good, makes sense of the, of the world, reinforces what we already think and who we are, Uh, helps us to be satisfied with our prejudices. It's easy to uncritically believe in a God who is on my side, who serves as a crutch, as Karl Marx said, an opiate of the masses. It's easy to believe in such a God. But what do you do when you're faced with situations that don't fit this kind of faith? 
What do you do when you face an existential crisis? Like Jesus did on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing a profound realization that perhaps God isn't there. Perhaps we are left alone. Perhaps this easy-to-believe-in God isn't really God at all. A lot of us can identify with that crisis when we're faced with the terminal illness of a loved one. What happens to our faith? Or when our relationships, our closest relationships, unravel? Or what happens when we lose our job? Or when we're trapped in cycles of addiction? What happens to our faith when everything we've held on to is most precious seems to be slipping through our fingers? When what we believed about the goodness of God and our exceptionalism is challenged by the realities of our life? For Rollins, the answer is a kind of Christian atheism that realizes that the easy to believe in God is dead. The easy to believe in God turns out to be nothing more than an idol. The easy to believe in God is the antithesis of authentic Christianity. The true God, it turns out, is right there in the midst of our darkness and doubt. Right in the depths of our suffering and our crisis. The true God is in the midst of those experiences and doubt it then seems is not an obstacle to encounter God, but rather a pathway to experience God in authenticity. A pathway to God. So the resurrection in John, and I think for us, becomes God's surprise. It's meant to take the limits off, the limits that I place on life, and shatter them to pieces. The resurrection takes my assumptions about the limits of forgiveness, the limits of who I can love, the limits of how much suffering I can endure, the limits of justice and forgiveness and mercy and shatters all of those. The resurrection brings us to a place where our pessimism, or our realism, if you will, does not have the last word, because God has taken what was once dead, and now it is alive. Rowan Williams ended an Easter sermon with these words. He said, Christian joy, the joy of Easter, is offered to the world not to guarantee a permanently happy society in the sense of a society free from tension or disappointment, but to affirm that whatever happens, there is a deeper level of reality, a world within a world, 
where love and reconciliation are ceaselessly at work, a world in which contact can be made so that we are able to live honestly and courageously with our God. The poet advised us, let us not mock God with metaphor, sidestepping transcendence. Let us walk through the door. So, friends, walk through the door into a new reality, a new world in which death with all of its greedy deadliness has been overcome, replaced with a love that will never die. Walk through the door. Love without reservation. Love without holding back. Love your dear friends and your neighbors and even strangers. Love and give away your life. Amen. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God proclaimed, for the word of God made flesh, we give thanks. Let us now respond to the good news of God's presence among us and God's resurrecting power with the fruits of our lives and our labors. In our death of resurrection. 
resurrection at the last of victory unrevealed until its season something God alone can see you are the song in every silence, and you alone can see the potential that lies within these gifts, that lies within each of us, that lies within this community of faith. So take these gifts and take us and help us to walk through the doors of our fears, the doors of our doubts, the doors of our reservations, and to live boldly into the truth of your resurrecting power. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
whatever is coming to an end in our life, there is a new beginning. Whatever we doubt, there is a believing. And in our death, there is a resurrection. Unveiled until its season, something only God can see. Amen.